1: Happy New Year, everyone, and welcome to the 12th season of our humble little podcast, the China and Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the Senior China-Africa Researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A happy New Year to you, Kobus, and welcome again to our 12th season together. Can you believe it? We've made it this far from 2010 all the way to 2022. Unbelievable it's wild yeah thanks so much happy new year before we get started today, I want to welcome all of our new Patreon members, John, Carrie, Lynn, so many more. It's great to have you part of the community. Everyone, by the way, in our Patreon community gets our weekly digest, plus regular news updates and our Zoom calls that we've been doing with folks around the world. It's great to have these fantastic conversations with so many smart people. We've been really enjoying this. If you want to join and support our show, head over to patreon.com slash Africa Project. Cobus. as you're no doubt fully aware, the day after Christmas this year, Anglican Archbishop Desmond Tutu passed away at 90 years old. Now, a lot of our younger listeners may not be familiar with who he was and why his passing was so important. Tutu was among the last of the giants of the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa that brought an end to white minority rule there. Uh, That was back in the early to mid-90s, a period that kind of started in the early 90s and went to 1994. He was a Nobel Prize winner, the first black archbishop of Cape Town, He led the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that became a model for the world in post-conflict stabilization. Let's just say that his accomplishments were far too many to list. But what's most important is that even late into his life, he remained a tireless advocate for human rights and oppressed minority populations around the world. So with that in mind, Kobus, it took me a little bit by surprise that both the Chinese Foreign Ministry in Beijing and the Chinese embassy in Pretoria both issued their condolences to South Africa for Tutu's passing. Now, normally, that's pretty standard diplomatic protocol for someone of Tutu's stature in any country. But Tutu was a longtime outspoken critic of China's, particularly on the sensitive issue of Tibet. In fact, for much of the past 20 or so years, he developed a very close and very public relationship with Tibetan spiritual leader the Dalai Lama, They even wrote a book together, they appeared in countless videos together, and Tutu applied his considerable moral power to the Tibetan cause. Now, Tutu was also a central character in three ultimately unsuccessful invitations for the Dalai Lama to visit South Africa, and each time the Dalai Lama was refused entry. Kobish, you remember back in the early days when we were doing the show, and this was an issue, uh, the South African government gave all these different excuses as to why the Dalai Lama was not going to be allowed to enter the, the country. And South African immigration authorities, they, they used one great excuse, which I thought was just fantastic. They said they lost his paperwork. And by the time they found it, well, the visa had expired. So in the history of diplomacy, I have no doubt that that's going to go down as one of the best excuses not to give somebody a visa. But Kobus Tutu was among... Really the last of his generation of freedom fighters and the last African human rights activist who was willing to use a truly global platform to challenge major powers in the world, even China. So tell us a little bit more about why his passing was significant and what the mood was in South Africa and reflect a little bit also on this China angle.
2: Well, you know, he, he was just a, a person of uh, just towering moral stature, um, and as as you mentioned, he was is a, a frequent critic of of the Chinese government. He was also a very frequent critic of the South African government and of of the, of the ruling party. Um, and you know the the moment that that you that you were referring to when when they were kind of dragging their feet trying and losing the paperwork of the Dalai Lama was happening as we'll discuss today during a moment when when there was a sharp increase in engagement between South Africa and China so you know so it was it it marked that kind of historical moment and Tutu was part of that moment um I met him once I interviewed him when I was a very junior journalist um in the late 90s incredibly nice like the the nicest person could possibly could possibly imagine it was like gracious kind friendly interested you know like patiently replying to to these kind of dumb questions i was asking yeah he was it was just just a monumental person it was an incredibly nice person and really it's a really really massive loss for 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 south africa and for the world
1: Well, thinking about Desmond Tutu and his passing, as well as China-South Africa relations, it brought me back to a conversation you and I were having a few weeks ago when we were talking to the journalist from Bloomberg about the DR Congo. And I mentioned that I felt that the DRC was the most consequential relationship that China has in Africa today. You challenged me on that and said, you know, wait a minute, South Africa remains The most important relationship in a much more comprehensive way. When we think about the vast size of the ethnic Chinese population, the corporate importance that South Africa plays, it's the gateway for uh, so much of the trade that China does with Africa. All of Southern Africa goes through the port of Durban. There's a big manufacturing hub, there's a big military security relationship. The ANC and the CCP uh, have a very close relationship. So when we start adding up the different facets of China, South Africa relations, I think I'm going to correct myself and agree with you on the fact that China-South Africa relations do, in fact, remain the most consequential of Beijing's engagement in the entire African continent. So with that in mind, we thought it would be a good idea to start our first show of 2022 looking at China-South Africa relations. And for that Really, I'm just, I've been excited for weeks to have this conversation with uh, Piwa Kule Myandu, who is a lecturer in the Africa Studies Department and the Department of World Languages at Howard University in Washington, D.C. He also specializes in South Africa-China relations, and he's the author of a new book on the topic that just came out last year, South Africa-China Relations Between Aspiration and Reality in a New Global Order. Piwa, happy new year, and thank you for joining us this morning from a very snowy Washington, D.C.
0: That's correct. Happy New Year to you, uh, Eric and Corbus uh, Sunny Bona. That's Zulu for hello. And uh, it's good to be here on this great show, um, whose work I, I admire very much.
1: Well, we're so humbled that you have been following our show for so many years. Thank you. It's exciting to finally have you on the program. I've been following you for many years on Twitter and really enjoy all uh, of your insights on this. I also enjoyed your book a lot, so I recommend everybody to go out and to check out the book. I'll put links to it in the show notes later. Uh, Before we get into the politics between China and South Africa and some of the themes that you raise in the book, uh, I'd like you to reflect a little bit as a South African on Desmond Tutu's passing and any insights that you might have on this relationship between Tutu and the Dalai Lama and his relationship with China.
0: Yes, uh, uh, as, a, as someone who grew up under apartheid, you know, and I, 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 saw, uh, I saw it fall, uh, right before apartheid fell, um, there were three types of people. There were the, the ones who were in exile. Uh, we never knew when they were coming back. It's very difficult to appreciate this fact now. Sometimes we thought they would never come back. There were the prisoners, Nelson Mandela. We never thought he would come out. Um, and it, again, difficult to appreciate this. But then there were the people uh, uh, who are in South Africa, the vast majority of people, the ones who kind of were at the tip of the spear of apartheid So if, Af- if apartheid was bad, which it was, they were the ones who, who felt it first. Uh, And there was one figure uh, whose whose presence is immutable in this majority um, of the body of a politic of South Africa. That's uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu. And so this is a person who, if if, uh, if there were any violations, you'd see him being violated on TV. So you kind of were left with no doubt that this is a person who's a hero. Is a person who's done a lot for, for, for the country. And more so then, as we saw apartheid disappear, and then we saw we just were left to contend with the new South Africa. Guess what? As Kobas as has said, rightly so, he turned around and said, you guys are corrupt in this government. You don't do, you're not uh, working for your people. You're going to be worse than apathy." And so he was a voice of reason, a consistent one throughout his life. And so uh, we say, hamburger, that's, uh, you know, hamburger, that's for farewell and a, a very, very well lived life for this South African at least.
2: Yeah, just also yeah, th- completely, completely kind of co-signing and, e- and echoing um, these these sentiments. Um, I was wondering what you what you made of of the the, the issue that Eric raised um, about the the Chinese embassy. You know, kind of not not kind of like missing the opportunity to also kind of express their condolences. I thought it would just it it you know kind of it would just look so small of them to not express condolences that they probably decided oh whatever you know and and they just kind of move you know kind of where went with it. Like what did you make of it
0: the chinese diplomacy in south africa has matured a lot from the time when the dalai lama was last in south africa in 1996 Remember, he's in, in 1996, South Africa has no, well, at least by law, um, De Jure has no formal relations with, with, the, with the PRC. And the Dalai Lama shows up, which antagonised uh, the PRC. And, um, and so the friendship between the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Tutu, it, it, was, through, it was during those times, that, you know, it was at the urging of, uh, of, of, of Archbishop Tutu for the Dalai Lama to show up. So since then, kind of the, the subsequent... Episodes of kind of the Dalai Lama not being able to come to South Africa and kind of this kind of China was always it tended to be seen as smarting from all these episodes and, and, and the South African government always inept at these things explaining itself, it was always found wanting. And so the Chinese were kind of clumsy in, in, in how they, in the statements, they were kind of reminiscent of these 1996, 97 kind of brinkmanship times when the PRC was really looking to have South Africa turn, so I I thought this was quite a mature uh, re- response from the Chinese. It shows a, a maturing of the diplomacy, uh, I I think. So
1: in 1996, that was before formal ties between South Africa and China. The two countries established formal relations in 1998 on January 1st. And in the time of diplomatic engagement between the two countries, the Dalai Lama was refused entry all three times. So it's a little bit confusing. So his visit in 96 was before they had diplomatic relations. You write the book, South Africa-China Relations Between Aspiration and Reality in a New Global Order. We talked about at the beginning of the show how both now, Cobus and I believe this is the most consequential relationship for China in Africa today. It's been that way for quite some time. It does not show any signs of fading. Why don't you tell us a little bit about some of the key themes in your book and about why this relationship, in your view, as you outlined in the book, is so important?
0: Um, the, the, the book is. Di- thank you for the question. The book is divided into two parts because uh, it's, I wanted to be comprehensive and go from the beginning of kind of when Chinese peoples and African peoples in Southern Africa kind of met. So and then so it's kind of the boring part. The first part is kind of historical, but in this part I um, I, I basically the, the, the relations between uh, South Africa and China uh, have been um, they started first being at, um, elusive where. Uh, there were just allusion in, allusions in Chinese stories, Chinese history, and we don't have any, of course, he, African historical account for obvious reasons of not being any written record among the African folks during these times. And this uh, graduated, so to speak, in the 20th century to this uh, attenuated contact, where uh, contact between the Africans in South Africa and the Chinese people are going to be attenuated by one, colonialism, Two apartheid, and three the fight against apartheid, or the fight the generally the fight for independence in Africa and these are going to always exert certain pressures on this relations and then uh, uh, later on another attenuation then is going to be you know uh, South Africa is what I call the developmental imperative South Africa wanting to you know have economic growth so that it can. You know, get rid of inequality, which is the highest in the world, Gini coefficient of 63 and, you know, unemployment of 34, you know, amongst the youth, 60 percent. So these imperatives then, um, I argue, they attenuate uh, uh, quite significantly the relationship uh, that China, the state, has with the state of South Africa.
2: You make the point in the book, and is, uh, that that I found very interesting, that South Africa, to a certain extent, d- defined itself as a developmental state, um, and, and you know, kind of, and, and now, of course, in South Africa, the, the the fact that that after more than two decades of of rule, there hasn't been significant development, is now also this kind of big referendum against the current government, and of course, China is one of the OG developmental states, you know, kind of one of one of the de- developmental states that ever that all of the other states kind of look to for development. So I was wondering, you know, kind of like what you make of the contrast between these two tra- development trajectories, even as the two countries themselves were, you know, kind of grew closer and closer. And yeah, like, what, what are some why is it, why has South African development stalled?
0: South African development is stalled because, uh, largely, I would say, because of state um, incompetence. Um, they, 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 the South African state, because one of the, the father of kind of the developmental states, Chalmers Johnson, had mentioned four uh, things that you must have or for you to have a developmental state. And one of them was a talented bureaucracy. And uh, another one was bureaucratic latitude. Another one was then having pilot programs. Uh, and so if I, the first one you know a talented bureaucracy Ta- for the talented bureaucracy to be effective in effecting your developmental policies it must there must be meritocracy and in south africa because of what uh, south africans know as um, uh, deploy, uh, what, deployed policy, where the ruling party basically chooses amongst a category of its cadres who's going to basically man um, uh, 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 the, um, the government offices. Some of them are very critical and consequential government offices. And so you find that there is a lag then in competence because political um, uh, uh, allegiance comes before merit. Merit. And I identify this then as the biggest Achilles heel in South Africa's uh, quest to a developmental state, rhetoric notwithstanding. So you hear a lot, uh, Escobas, you have actually uh, talked um, earlier when you're asking the question, a lot of talk from the, from the South Africans, developmental state, developmental state, the National Developmental Plan, to- I think it mentions developmental 25 times. But you hardly find any concrete, measurable plan along with this developmentalism. So I identify this then as as a, what I call narrative dissonance, that uh, the South African state talks about developmental state that it, it would like. It even points to China, among others, but it, it is quite far from achieving it.
1: It does point to China in many ways. And there is, seems to be some desire in South Africa to model their political system in part on the way that China has established its own political system by having the party above the state. So in China, the Communist Party is supreme, in fact, above the state. Now, that's something that I think for a lot of people in Europe or the United States, the government supersedes the party, but not in China. And in many ways, there's been a desire from the ANC to have permanent rule and to make the ANC above the state. They haven't been able to do that, but that's their objective in many ways, that they look at the Chinese as a developmental model. And in fact, the Communist Party has set up a training academy in South Africa, if I understand correctly. There's a lot of exchanges between the ANC and the CCP. There's a lot of engagement there. Talk to us a little bit about the party-to-party relationship outside of the state-to-state ties.
0: Indeed, indeed, some of the um, most, I would say, um, Decisive diplomacy, decisive in the, in the sense that, you know, high senior leaders of the ruling party and by consequence, mostly ruling government in South Africa have actually uh, to go to uh, China and they, they say they are going to have lessons, right? And but what it basically means for your listeners, this means that they go there and under the ages of ANC. CPC uh, relations and the CPC's international office will host them and there will be uh, lessons and speeches um, and the South Africans usually come back from this quite impressed they usually come back quite impressed, and, and rightly so, because um, th- there's a high level of competence, I think it's beyond uh, doubt here, in, in the Chinese state and in the CPC itself. So in other words, meritocracy, we cannot question the level of meritocracy that takes place there. But the same doesn't occur um, across the ocean in South Africa. So when they come back... Um, replete with all sorts of models um, uh, from, from, from uh, the, the PRC, uh, impl- implementation immediately becomes a problem. And uh, one of the major uh, stumbling blocks in this implementation is factionalism, for example, within the ANC itself. So if right now we have the, um, the for example, they call it the New Dawn faction, uh, which has taken over after the radical economic transformation faction of Jacob Zuma. So when, like, a, in, like in typical African uh, politics, unfortunately, you find that when the, new, when the new administration, in this case in the ANC, comes, it will always see something the, the, the past administration did with, the, with a very dim view. And so, whatever model they may have learnt on kind of uh, on some of these things, it will always come be found wanting thanks to factionalism within the ANC. And that's one of the biggest stumbling blocks. And another one I would say is actually South Africa is not. China in its and in its uh, politics uh, South Africa is a multi-democratic uh, democratic country the ANC has been losing 5% vote in the, in the last four elections so the ANC it used to win by 70% in 2004 in the last elections it won by f- it, it, it it crossed the 60% floor it won uh, by 58% and if the local government elections are any indication it is bound to actually lose power uh, um, by some estimates in 2024. So then any uh, diplomacy between South Africa and China that is premised on the relationship between either the PRC or the CPC and the ANC is bound to kind of be dashed in the, in on the rocks of reality. Uh, the reality is South Africa's multi-party democracy.
1: So so you're saying if i understand that the because South Africa is a multi-party democracy and a rather vibrant one at that the ANC's desire to model themselves on the CPC model is misguided.
0: it, it is uh, it, 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 precisely and in fact to the to that credit when i when i speak to the chinese scholars chinese students and I say, I, I test them, you know, as a, as a researcher, I ask provocative questions. I say, well, you have a great model here in China. We would like to learn from it. And the first thing they say uh, consistently, they say, no, 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 no. Do not model us, your, um, your country's, whatever economic plan you have after us. You need to, co- your country's plan needs to cohere to local characteristics and local conditions, Of course, we know that China has a long history of doing this, you know, back in the Soviet-Stalin-Mao times of basically, you know, translating developmental models to itself. And South Africa, I doubt that South Africa um, has shown any willingness to do this. Yeah, but South Africa's multi-party democracy is something to contend with.
2: So you make the you make the point a very interesting point for me that that uh, that during the the two thousands and as we as we we, we during the two thousands we saw a very strong kind of pivot from the Mbeki era um, to the Jacob Zuma era in South Africa which also which was also a pivot towards China and a pivot towards kind of the BRICS countries so you, you know kind of and you lay out some some of these kind of some of the pull factors that pull South Africa in that direction but you also lay out a lot of the push Factors which pushed South Africa out of a, a kind of a Washington consensus position that it was in 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 the late 90s after after democratization. What were some of the issues between the, that? What were some of the, some of the factors that 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 kind of cooled down the relationship between South Africa and its traditional Western partners?
0: Um, I think one of them uh, one is going to be uh, just continental narrative and also um, politics within South Africa itself. Because the way, uh, and I'll start with the politics within South Africa itself, the way South African politics often works, and, and if we discuss South African politics, I'm sorry to say this, but in the 2000s, it, when you were talking about South African politics, you were basically talking about ANC politics, you know, at least in, uh, in a consequential manner, in a, in a manner that affects state affairs. So, um, And so the politics at that time, they were kind of um, Afrocentric, uh, they wanted to, to, um, to build the, this African renaissance that Tabombeki um, uh, dreamt about. Um, and uh, it would be based on, um, on, on economic growth. And this growth would be premised on, on, on this NEPAD peer review mechanisms. Of course, um, the first stumbling block to this growth was capital. Was capital, and so the, this I highlight this then as being one of the push factors, the lack of, 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 of developmental wherewithal uh, emanating from, uh, from the fact that FDI went down remarkably during this era. So what the Western world was kind of talking about, they were kind of not doing uh, it, it wasn't finding traction in the continent. Secondly, then, um, this continental uh, environment. Well, guess what? <laughs> South Africa is, or Africa has a, has a cornucopia of, of democracies or non democracies. And usually, when people were, um, I remember an example of the Gambia, uh, they were ruled by a strong man called, I think, uh, Njame he was very vocal against NEPAD. In other words, this growth that's going to be based on cooperation, it's going to be kind of guided by the same principles as kind of emanating from the global north. Well, he said, these are neo-colonialist views. These are European views. And so that was one of the uh, the stumbling blocks that kind of met uh, South Africa's uh, efforts at that time, this narrative. They were not able to overcome the narrative. And lastly, uh, well you know, some of the presidents that signed on to this um, kind of European-led growth initiative were people like Wade of Senegal, an authoritarian leader. So I would say it um, it was bound to kind of fall short. And this set the stage for these push factors to come into effect from Beijing.
1: Let's pull back the focus a little bit from South Africa to look at the continent as a whole. As you know, uh, Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi has begun the new year with his annual tour of Africa. Uh, This is for 32 years now. The Chinese foreign minister always begins the first overseas trip of the year in Africa. This year, he's going to Eritrea, to Kenya, and also to the Comoros Islands in the Indian Ocean. I know this is an issue that you have been following, especially over the past, say, 6 to 12 months— where we've seen a lot of Chinese diplomatic activity and high-level visits to Africa, even amid the pandemic. So Wang Yi went three times last year to Africa, including his first overseas trip back in January. Yang Jiechi went twice. There, of course, was the FOCAC summit that was in Senegal. Lots of activity. Europe and the United States have been far more reluctant to travel. In fact, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken made his first trip as Secretary of State just in November, right before FOCAC, what is the mood or the assessment that from Washington where you're sitting about Wang Yi's tour, or are people really just not paying that much attention to it, as seems to be the case in much of Africa? Today we wrote about in the newsletter how the Chinese press is not covering his his tour, and neither really is the African press in Eritrea and just a little bit in Kenya. What's the view from Washington where you're sitting?
0: the view from washington is exactly like the that, that, that uh, you've you've outlined uh, the people uh, were following uh, of what um, what secretary blinken uh, was uh, saying we were seeing him on tv in november when he was going around kenya and we uh, had uh, sometimes would hear um uh, about one minute to two minutes um, uh, uh, captions of, of of the of the video and audio from his meetings with various um, uh, presidents, like uh, when he went to Kenya, and so on and so forth. Uh, but and that was the end of it as far as the coverage of uh, visitors into Africa. So the, there was no coverage um, of these uh, Chinese uh, visits. But I think it 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 follows the same um, kind of this i this. American insularity that exists in the Beltway. Uh, to your viewers, Beltway is this area of Washington, D.C. and surrounding places, Maryland and Virginia. So it's quite an insular place. So it's, it's hardly ever interested um, in uh, the, the, the machinations, if you will, of uh, Chinese diplomats unless they kind of, uh, it, 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 unless Washington is kind of talking about it unless Washington is talking about it. If it's not, then usually Americans are not interested.
2: You teach at at Howard University, a historically African-American university, and I was wondering how... How that kind of perspective on on Africa-China relations looks from the African American perspective, in, in your experience in speaking with your students?
0: My students, yeah, ninety-five um, percent of my students are going to be uh, uh, yep, African American students um, uh, who are raised um, in in all parts of America, quite a diverse grouping of African-Americans, quite representative then of the you know, um, uh, varying views ranging from uh, liberal, sometimes to quite conservative. So it's quite a joy uh, to get into the minds of kind of the African-American community in America through its, uh, its sons and daughters who come to Howard. And they come to Howard wanting what, what, uh, generally speaking, uh, they really want to connect with the, what we call the African diaspora, the world of African, uh, people of African descent, wherever they are found, and also to then do any, something that has to do with the world. In other words, to know more about the world, to kind of go over the typical kind of American reticence towards you know, the world, to, generally speaking. And so what they do then immediately, they latch on to this idea of, um, that Africa is weak because it's not united. And so Africa needs to be united, and usually kind of some form of African unity is going to is going to is the only way really for Africa to do a lot of things and many people have come over the years to divide Africa, so they will usually talk about Europeans and so on and so forth, and where the, and then they will end with and now China. So so there's a lot of um, demystifying that I have to do to kind of qualify these the China-Africa relations and, you know, without, you know, uh, without um, devaluing the students' perspective, because these perspectives matter. So they usually follow the general um, kind of view until they learn more.
1: But there's a very different perspective that African Americans bring to the conversation than, say, the political discourse in Washington that just suspects China anywhere in the world. Talk to us a little bit about the historical perspectives that many of your students are bringing to their relationship with Africa, and they feel in many respects, as you were pointing out, that that China is just the latest colonial power coming to divide Africa. When what they want, of course, is a united Pan African movement. But as you've talked about, that's actually uh, not quite the way it is. Can you expand on that a little bit?
0: Yeah, I I, I, I respect history, and especially with this this particular topic. And I, so, they're always interested to find out that you know China has long-standing relations, not just with Africans, but with with their people, the African-American people, such, uh, such as Paul Robeson, the great scholar and humanitarianist uh, who, uh, you know, um, ended up in China, who can sing the Chinese, who could sing the Chinese national anthem. And I still, and I show them videos on YouTube, you know, of him uh, singing the March of the Volunteer. And and, and then, uh, of course, the great scholar W.E.B. Du Bois, the first African-American to get a PhD at Harvard, a great scholar who... Who is going to be dejected in America, kind of in, in McCarthy, America. And he's going to be um he's going to have his passport rejected. The Chinese will give him the passport to travel. He's going to end up in Ghana, where many of my students like going to trace their roots uh, and and other primordial reasons. And so he's going to die there and his house is buried there in his house. And students immediately become interested then in the richness of the relations that Chinese people or China have had with uh, African people in Africa and in the diaspora. However then, I'm always quick then to qualify that present day Africa is not a monolith. Um, There are some very bad countries in Africa or badly run countries. And so um, the idea then that China will come and meet or have relations with one Africa you know we must disabuse ourselves of you know and so that usually begins a conversation and it starts off a whole bunch of research questions for the students and uh, it's usually a, a start to a good thing
2: you know kind of in in your time in in washington um have you say, how how have you seen the 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 discourse in relation to to china and africa changing you know kind of over the time that we've covering that we've been covering the issue we've seen for example a kind of a, a a strong uptake of the the like of of commentary frequently very kind of misguided kind of commentaries on um, on China Africa relations by the right wing media so you know kind of we see you, you you like during the time that I've been covering it I saw the first time that it became a kind of Fox News talking point and then several times after um so I was wondering from your perspective like how how has the the kind of like the, the kind of within the beltway kind of view of China-Africa relations shifted during your time there?
0: I guess in life, you don't get what you want, you get, you know, you but you get what you need because I always want, you know, I always want one's view of, Afri- of, Af- of Africa-China relations um, ever since I, you know, started studying this this uh, um, uh, area. And so I, I try to teach that and, you know, uh, uh, highlight that in my research. And so uh, what you get then is that, there is always a um, a reaction to the to the to the right wing media in America, especially when I watch again my students, African American students who are Gen Z, who are going to go and work in government, NGOs, and represent this country of theirs. They still have a very complex relationship, of course, with America and American society. And one of them is this um, this kind of right wing narratives that kind of sometimes is nativist and and so they often have a reaction to this uh, narrative so any narrative that's going to come about china from fox my students will almost uh, in, it will have an, an almost visceral reaction in this visceral then i'm coming to the part where you get what you you know you, you need in this visceral reaction Uh, comes an opportunity for the students to understand the true nature of China, of China-Africa relations. And some work has been done on this, um, uh, or some scholars have started looking into how Generation Zers actually, they don't view China as just naturally bad. Unlike um, kind of the right wing media would would have them view china they don 't view China as just um, in, 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 as just marauding around the world uh, without being kind of um, uh, without a, a, a countervailing force may, They may not know what that is, but they kind of they have, a, they have more a more nuanced view of China in the world. And the extent that Washington is now full of these young students who are coming up or young practitioners of foreign policy, I, I think the view has, ha, is now far different than when I first came in Washington uh, 10 years ago. 10 years ago, you wouldn't hear a nuanced view if you attended a think tank session, but now you do. And, and also, I would say, the inclusion of, 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 of Africans in the conversation has also um, really amplified this view. And I think platforms like yours uh, is actually contributing to this because um, your platform, I see the most number of African scholars and practitioners in any platform on China-Africa, whether it's in Africa or in, in China or in America, certainly.
1: Well, that's uh, very humbling. and And that's why we've been doing this is to help inform the debate and the discourse, which is why... It was so frustrating and disappointing for us. And you, I think you, if you listened to our end of year program last year, we reflected on this when your compatriot, Trevor Noah, did a 10-minute segment on China-Africa, and it was just as pathetic as you've ever seen coming out of right-wing, Breitbart, Fox News media. And it was just littered with inaccuracies. <laughs> um, and, and in many ways, it was, it was despairing because... It reflects the fact that the discourse in the United States really isn't moving forward, And the debt trap narrative remains pervasive, and it remains deeply embedded. It reminds me a little bit. I have a number of relatives who who watch Fox News. And when you have these conversations with them, it's just like you're in a completely parallel universe. And it's the same when I have conversations with people in China, too, where their their media bubble, is entirely ensconced within, uh, you know, behind the firewall. And you're, they're just, there's alternative facts on all sides. And this debt trap narrative in Washington and the way that they frame the Africa China relationship, and it's the same with the Equatorial Guinea and the military base, that bogus report that was on the, on the Wall Street Journal. I, I say bogus only because there's no evidence that's been put forward on this. It's just part of the Washington narrative. So I'm a little bit surprised that you've you you're you're seeing progress in the discourse in Washington when from afar, we are not seeing that nuance emerge. So I guess I'm taking some hope from you, but I'd like to get your take on on the popular discourse, like from Trevor Noah, what you saw. And then where do your students end up? You start with them probably thinking that there are that China's the colonial power, China is uh, seizing assets, China's building military bases, is importing workers. all of the usual uh, stereotypes that have been disproven by academics and scholars in the community you speak of, but doesn't make it into the more, Uh, mainstream debate. Where do they end up at the end of your course?
0: Yeah, I think uh, where they end up is the same um, with kind of the other kind of younger Gen Z practitioners uh, who may have a nuanced view about China. But the way they end up, actually, unfortunately, um, without being over optimistic here, is actually they do end up, as you've said, kind of um, paying abeyance to this uh, to, 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 to what still is a dominant narrative of China, because they do want to work. They do want to go into a certain government agency and work. And they quickly f- find out then that there is a, you know, a UA Junior. There is a, the, the prevailing narrative is that, you know, China is involved in trapping African countries with debt and And no way in this conversation is you know well, what are African countries doing with that agency? you know no one is making African countries so without wanting to do bad for china you kind of um you are caught uh, the or the, the thinking students are caught in in a dilemma, and so they kind of melt into the mainstream then to the mainstream of um of this uh you know narrative and um oh, that you know China is kind of a, a, a is involved in nefarious activities um, in Africa, regardless of this idea that Africans want to be taken seriously for their own actions. Uh, but there is uh, room for uh, optimism, I would say, too. Emanating from uh, um, an analysis of just the comments on Trevor Noah's video, if you go into the comment section, you'll find that there is vociferous pushback on, on, on what Trevor Noah said. People are saying, I'm disappointed in you, Trevor, I thought you were smart, Trevor. I thought you knew about foreign relations, Trevor. So I'm sure Trevor Noah regretted doing that, uh, that episode.
1: Do you think Trevor Noah reads the comments on his YouTube videos? You never know late at night. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. Maybe. I don't know. I, I hope... That he got that message.
0: We don't need him to read them. Uh, we just need the people who would like to know better to read them. Bring the conversation back
2: uh, slightly to South Africa. You know, you, you you make the point that that in in the late two thousands, um, there was this, this moment where where the where South Africa, together with with the the other kind of BRICS countries, were kind of moving away from from traditional kind of governments clubs like the G eight um and you know and, and the kind of launching of the BRICS with with South Africa you know was was seen as this kind of momentous moment this kind of shift you know in the international order um where do you see the BRICS grouping now and where do you see it in like 10 years you know kind of do you do you do, do, you know is there still some kind of juice left in in that particular in, in that particular group
0: oh that's a great question Corpus a very difficult question ah, uh, because um the, I, I i'll maybe i'll be straightforward the the heydays and the great merriment of bricks was indeed during the jacob zuma presidency you know um you, you remember some of the push factors again you know after the two thousand and seven two thousand all to, all the way to two thousand and nine you know um uh, financial downturn a uh, great recession whatever we call it uh, the chinese uh demand for south african exports actually rescued the south african economy and this was a turning point i identified this in my book for south africa to turn away from the kind of It was kind of measured because he he always harbored dreams of african grandeur and renaissance and big things about africa african solutions but he elect capital and so he was kind of reticent to many beijing-centric initiatives including BRICS itself um, well, and for uh, to, to some extent, if you judge by who, which high level or low level ministers South Africa sent, but with Jacob Zuma, decidedly turning towards BRICS, um, you you saw this kind of a crescendo of activity, and but I would say I identify the changing of the guards in Brazil with the uh, with Temer. Funny enough, we're talking about South Africa, but these things have have caused an effect. Uh, During the Obama administration, Temer takes over from Dilma Rousseff, and I I won't lie, that was the last I saw a robust BRICS engagement on these solid, what I call meaty issues, like Brics Bank, let it begin now. You know, uh, infrastructure uh, infrastructure funds, uh, let them begin now. And that's what they were talking at the time. But you saw a lot of slow walking. And I would say also, um, I identify the the complicated relationship between China and India, and, and you know, and uh, Prime Minister Modi assuming office in India. And, and then South Africa, the complicated relationship then, or, or um, the Zuma being thrown out of power by the ANC, and then um, the new dawn coming in Ramaphosa, who, he, who uh, quickly recognized that there is an immutability to South Africa's close relations with China. However, he doesn't have to do everything. You know, he doesn't have to be excited about everything that has to do with South Africa and BRICS. And so I would say then, to answer your question where I see BRICS right now, is kind of, a, it's a slow pace. It's a slower pace than we've seen. And, and uh, thanks to some of these factors I've outlined. Okay,
1: let's end our discussion on a look forward. You are the first guest of the new year. Every guest that we have in January, we're going to ask the same question. What do you see ahead in the year 2022 for Africa-China relations? It's going to be a bumpy year in terms of COVID-19, the U.S. great power rivalry with China. What do you see ahead in the, in, in the coming year?
0: I've been paying a lot of attention to Twitter and um, the, uh, the, what I call uh, narrative, uh, narrative battles on Twitter between, you know, kind of like the, in, in Chinese uh, high-level diplomats and their uh, Twitter accounts, whoever runs them. And now even like this uh, Chinese SOEs um, now have Twitter accounts that uh, that are in Africa. And then private citizens. Uh, some Chinese netizens, wherever they're based, but um, some may say bots, but they're quite involved. So what I see is actually... A, 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 an escalation of the narrative uh, of narrative um, uh, battles, I'll call them on Twitter, and a, actually, a more forceful We've already seen this in 2021 a more forceful uh, pushback, or and a more nitpicking, if you will. Anything that kind of the West does, uh, especially on human rights, uh, I see that being made a, a lot of hay, uh, a lot of hay being made of that, especially. Uh, the justice movement in the United States, um, and I always talk tell when I talk to my American friends who are diplomats that um, how America treats black people in America is no longer an American thing. In other words, the American people, as relation the the, the law and order, American people and American law enforcement relations with the black people, it's now an international relations uh, fiasco. Uh, you know, that can be exploited, and that is exploitable in these narrative battles by China. Uh, we've seen some mention of it. We've seen the human rights reports. And I say then, we'll see more of this. Watch the narrative. And the Chinese are becoming more sophisticated. It started off kind of with, with blunt force Twitter account. You know, they kind of like sounded like old sloganeering. But now they are quite more sophisticated. They're more nuanced. And so... I'm looking forward um, to studying these, actually, and America's reaction to them.
1: The book is South Africa-China Relations Between Aspiration and Reality in a New Global Order. Uh, Piwo Miyandu is the author and also a lecturer at Howard University on Africa-China relations. Unfortunately, Piwo, your book, oh, it's so painful. I, I say this every single time. I look at the price for your books for these academic books on Amazon. Uh, the Kindle edition is unfortunately a little pricey at $45. And then the hardcover at $95. Why won't academic publishers bring the prices down for these books so we can actually buy them? It is really one of my pet peeves. So I hope that if you're in a library somewhere, it's there, or if you're on some kind of expense account, you can go ahead and sign up and get the Kindle edition of it. Uh, Piwo, it was great to have you. I recommend everybody to go out and get the book. Uh, you are active on Twitter yourself. Uh, where can people find you on social media?
0: Oh, they can find me at Piwo mnyandu at Piwo hmm on Twitter. And uh, I promise my next book on African students in China will be cheaper. I promise.
1: Yes, that would be great. Listen, this is worth 45 bucks. So i it's a good read. It's an important read. There are not many books on China-South Africa relations. So this is really important. So if this is a topic you're interested in and your library does not have it, g- don't be cheap. Go out and support professors and lecturers and scholars like uh, Piwo. They need the, all the help they can get these days. Piwo, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. We really appreciate it. We'll put links to your Twitter account and also the Amazon link in the show notes. And we really appreciate you joining us for the first show of the year for us.
0: Oh, Thank you very much.
1: I'm so glad that we started the new year with Pi Wo to look at China-South Africa relations. And it's funny because he downplayed the beginning of his book, which I think is actually more interesting for me than the second half of the book. And the first half, as he talked about, is about this historical relationship. And I think too many people look at the China-Africa relationship today as a modern phenomenon when we actually, and as he explained in detail in the book, and 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 other scholars like Yunjun Park uh, who is another one of the amazing China South Africa scholars out there? Have detailed quite a bit in their own books is that the the, the China Africa relationship in South Africa dates back centuries three three at least three hundred years, and and I, I think that adds a layer of complexity that is different elsewhere in Africa. So in South Africa, there is a very large ethnic Chinese population, whereas in most of the rest of Africa, the Chinese population tends to be new immigrants that have come. So they're Chinese-Chinese. And that is different than the Chinese South Africans who have been there for, for centuries and who have ancestors who date back centuries as well. That, to me, is so fascinating because what ends up happening is that when we talk about the Chinese in Africa, and I put air quotes on which you can't see, But when you talk about the Chinese in Africa, it folds everybody up into one little bundle. And that is simply not the case. And what we've heard from other researchers over the years is that as much as half the population of ethnic Chinese in the entire African continent are, in fact, not Chinese immigrants, but native-born Africans. So that's a part of this relationship that I think really goes overlooked when people talk about the complexity of the China Africa relationship
2: yes and you know and, and so this is one of the reasons why South Africa China relationship is, is is so important because it it shows the full complexity of, of the relationship between between the continent and, and China um, you know including you know kind of as you say this this um, ethnically Chinese population in South Africa who because of of South Africa's crazy history with you know an and extremely kind of racist history gets caught up in all of these all of these kind of ways that race governs life in in South Africa, in very very complicated ways. So for example, um, uh, you, you know the, the scholar Mingwei Wang, um, who we've we've interviewed a few times um, and who uh, publishes a, a published a, a chapter in a book that I co edited that came out two years ago um, about anxiety in Johannesburg um and she writes a lot about about that kind of racial anxiety between chinese employees and and african employees for example in in you know kind of in south african cities um so it's an incredibly kind of complicated relationship um and a really important one to unpack i think
1: one of the issues that we've been following over the past 6 to 9 months is there's been a noticeable increase in violent crime Against ethnic Chinese in South Africa. Now, let's just to be fair here. There's been an increase in crime in South Africa as a whole, so it's not always entirely clear if the victims of these criminal attacks and these, in many cases, they've been murders and they've been robberies, if they've been singled out because of their race or it just happens to be that everybody is subject to crime in many parts of South Africa. So, in Newcastle, uh, which is in KwaZulu Natal province. There have been There's a very large Chinese population there. There have been quite a few instances lately. But it's one of the things we've been tracking. And again, it is very difficult to separate out who is being attacked for what. But there has been a xenophobic crime against Chinese. I think it was in Durban a few years ago there were xenophobic riots. Chinese were victims of that as well. So again, it, it taps into this very complex history that is, is oftentimes very difficult to understand, but one that is, is absolutely fascinating to follow.
2: Yes, there's there's no easy line to draw between race and crime in South Africa, you know, kind of in any any way, particularly, you know, kind of when one also considers that... The vast majority of of, of victims of, of violent crime in South Africa are black, um, and they th- those those kind of that form of victimhood receives a lot less attention, you know, kind of than than others. There's also these kind of this, South Africa has these, these occasional kind of outbursts of xenophobic violence, um, where, as you say, Chinese shops are sometimes targeted. But what we've seen over the last few years is that. Is that this this trend that you've identified of 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 these kind of violent robberies of of, of Chinese business owners? stands in contrast with the fact that that during widespread xenophobic outbursts, Chinese businesses may be targeted, but we don't really see Chinese community members targeted. so as as much as one sees, for example, Ethiopian small business owners being targeted. So it's a really complicated situation. and you know kind of and 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 with it comes again, very racialized ideas of who, for example, keeps money in their houses, who is just rich because they you know because because of racial identity this this it's it's a real kind of like complicated kind of kind of web of issues
1: and and to that end there's been growing concern within the chinese government about the security of chinese expatriates in various African countries. Uh, last year in December, November and December, the Chinese embassy in Kinshasa gave an order for its residents in three eastern DRC provinces, Ituri, South Kivu, and North Kivu, to evacuate. Also, at the end of last year as well, there was an, a really interesting meeting that took place between the Ministry of Public Security in China and all Chinese diplomatic missions in Nigeria with the Chinese business community to talk about security and protecting Chinese personnel and property and Chinese enterprises. So it looks like that protection against crime in various African countries is rising on the priority list, and it's probably going to rise in the diplomatic communications between China and various African countries as well as instances of crime increase. Uh, before we go, let's give you a little bit of a layout of what we've got. Plan for later this year. And, and, and we've got some super exciting things. As I told you at the beginning of the show, we have this fantastic Patreon community that is growing. It's becoming increasingly dynamic. The Zoom calls that we're doing are really fun. We're trying to do them at different times of the day so that we can get people from different parts of the world. But one of the fun parts of it is when everybody starts talking to each other and it's just connecting people who are interested in global affairs and Chinese affairs. Again, if that's how you'd like to engage with us and also your support for us is so appreciated, go to patreon.com slash China Africa project. You'll also get our weekly digest with your membership there. If you would just like the weekly digest and you want to get a subscription to the show, you can do that on our website and you can also sign up for the daily newsletter that we produce. And beginning in February, we're gonna start producing content in French and in Arabic. We're super excited about that. Those sites are gonna launch later in March. And in, in March, we're also going to start doing a lot more live with Kobus and also with our new French editors and guests on both Twitter Spaces and on Facebook Live and YouTube Live, doing much more video. So we want to expand the conversation on these various social platforms in video and live audio on Twitter Spaces. So some really cool things. If you want to subscribe and be a part of everything that we're going to do, go to ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. Uh, It's a, great community that's being built, so we have two ways to, for you to be a part of what we're doing over on Patreon and over on our website. If you have any questions whatsoever, feel free to reach out to Kobus or I by email eric at chinaafricaproject.com or kobus at chinaafricaproject.com. So that'll do it for this edition. We're going to be back very soon. Again, not a week. We're actually going to be back in 24 hours with yet another show. Our recording schedule this week got a little bit messed up because of the holidays, but we're going to be looking, at Wang Yi's tour in Africa with Oscar Otele from the University of Nairobi. Until then, for Gobbes van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening.
0: The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. For more information about the China Africa Project, go to chinaafricaproject.com.